Theirs was a land untamed, a vast wilderness rich in natural resources and wildlife, but stretched out over a continent, with terrain that varied from the cold, rocky climates in the north to the tempered lands further south, which ultimately give way to dry, arid desert. This was the home of the first Americans, the native tribes of North America. For the Native American peoples, the arrival of Europeans en masse from the 16th century onwards must have felt akin to an alien invasion. They were different in color, they brought with them advanced technologies, and they cared little for the peoples who had lived on these lands for millennia. And thus, faced with this threat to their livelihoods, their identity, and even their existence, the Native American peoples would inevitably have to face the invaders in battle. Branded as savages by the white invaders and labeled with the term Indian, the Native American peoples fought valiantly with courage, determination, and skill, earning them begrudging respect in battle from their foes. But sadly, that didn't transfer to the times of peace, where they found themselves restricted further and further by the invaders' laws and guns. As the 19th century wore on, the time of the Native American dominance was quickly coming to an end. The remaining tribes were forced onto reservations, as the new Americans, the descendants of the white European settlers who had forged their own country, the United States of America, consolidated their hold on the continent. Their trophy celebrating 400 years of expansion, but it had not been an easy victory. On the contrary, for all those involved, it was a time of bloody and brutal warfare, with both sides guilty of heinous atrocities upon the other. In every war, there are those whose names for good or ill enjoy greater notoriety than others, be it for their cunning in combat or their exploits against the enemy. In today's episode, we are going to examine some of the most notable Native American war leaders, examine their exploits during the many wars they fought for survival, and examine their cultural impact on the modern day United States of America. These are the greatest Native American warriors. Welcome to Wars of the World. While his name might not be as well remembered as some of those who came after him, Opechacano was a central figure in the early conflicts between the Native Americans and the white Europeans who sought to colonize the place they called the New World. In 1607, the first permanent white European settlement was established in the Americas when Jamestown Colony was founded near the present-day city of Williamsburg in the state of Virginia. At the time, a local tribe, which came to be known as the Powhatan Tribe, was the dominant force in the area. Powhatan approached the settlers and attempted to establish peaceful relations with them, 
but within two years, as the region experienced one of the worst droughts in history, the peaceful nature between the two groups slowly eroded away, as the English settlers began to compete with them for food and farmland. The leader of the Powhatan tribe, a man named Powhatan, from whom the tribe earned its name, clamped down on the English hunters, entering his tribe's land, which he viewed as being akin to poaching, which resulted in the Jamestown settlers almost starving out of existence. Both sides soon resorted to attacks on the other, and women and children were not exempt from the suffering. They were slain with extreme brutality by both parties. An uneasy peace was agreed when Powhatan's daughter Pocahontas married settler John Rolfe. In 1618, Powhatan passed away, and power was transferred to his brother, Opechacano, which marked a rapid deterioration in relations as he sought to drive the white settlers off his land. On March 22nd, 1622, he orchestrated simultaneous attacks on the outlying plantations around Jamestown and on the colony itself. The settlers were caught totally by surprise, and some 350 were killed, roughly a quarter of the colony's overall population. The brutality of the attack terrified the survivors, and there was very real consideration given to abandoning Jamestown entirely. But ultimately, with the discovery of the profitable tobacco crop, they decided to stay and fight. What followed was a prolonged period of intermittent warfare between the Jamestown colonists and the Powhatan tribe under Opechacano. Known as the Second Anglo-Powhatan War, the fighting would last around 14 years and was typified by annual offenses by both sides, primarily during the summer seasons. Opechacano, perhaps spurred on by his earlier massacre, adopted a policy of launching powerful raids against the settlers, demonstrating his tribe's superiority in numbers and brutality in battle. He would then pull back and allow the settlers to contemplate their futures, hoping he had made enough of a show of force to encourage them to withdraw. However, this was not the case, and instead the English settlers adopted a strong response policy fighting back with just as much brutality in an effort to purge the region of what they viewed as little more than heathen savages. By 1630, both sides were exhausted from the prolonged warfare, and several efforts were made to broker a ceasefire, all failing until 1632, when a more permanent peace was agreed. Jamestown survived the war with Opechacano, but at a great cost of lives. In the 12 years after the war, Opechacano fought to keep the remnants of his tribe together, all the while watching the settlers at Jamestown consolidating their position with a series of fortifications and then expanding outward. 12 years after the end of the Second War, a third war was brewing. The situation for the Powhatan was now getting desperate, and the now elderly Opechacano led them into another bold and brutal attack that killed nearly 500 colony settlers. However, the Third Anglo-Powhatan War was a much shorter affair and ended in disaster for the Powhatans, with countless men being captured and deported out of the area, thus bleeding the Powhatan culture to death. Opechacano was captured, and the old man, who some say was probably in his 90s, was paraded in front of a jeering crowd at Jamestown before being shot by his guard. 
While his name doesn't have the fame of some of those who came after his time, his story is being brought to the wider public attention in more recent times, thanks to renewed interest in the Jamestown story, with films and television shows depicting events surrounding the colony's history. Born in 1720 in the modern day US state of Ohio, Pontiac would become a prominent member of the Ottawa peoples before eventually rising to the position of tribal chief at age 35. As chief of his tribe, he agreed to an alliance with the French colonists who were in competition with the British for land. But ultimately the French were defeated, affording the British many former French settlements and forts in 1760, perhaps hoping to curry favor with the British, he agreed to let British Major Robert Rogers and his men pass through his land unmolested in order to seize an abandoned French fort nearby. All he asked in return was that he and his people be treated with respect. However, the British denied Pontiac and his people permission to enter the forts for trading, while their hunting grounds were quickly being eroded away by aggressive British colonization. Unable to reach an amicable agreement with the British, Pontiac knew that war was the only option left open to him. And so he began a campaign to enlist the aid of neighboring tribes. Using his negotiation skills, almost every tribe from Lake Superior to the Lower Mississippi rallied to his cause. And in 1762, he began planning for the war that would expel the British. First, the British forts would be attacked and destroyed, allowing them to fall upon the defenseless settlements, burning them to the ground and killing their inhabitants. The attacks began in May of 1763, sparking the so-called Pontiac's War. Pontiac himself elected to attack the fort at modern day Detroit, but the element of surprise he had been counting on was lost, allowing the fort to ready its defenses. This forced him to alter his plan and instead lay siege to the fort. And over the coming months, he would win several engagements with the British, most notably at the Battle of Bloody Run. 250 British troops attacked Pontiac's encampment, but the chief had been expecting it and was able to repel them. However, ultimately British reinforcements were able to lift the siege by October, forcing Pontiac to withdraw. While he did fail to capture his own intended targets, his plan met with more success at other forts that were attacked. Numerous smaller forts were attacked and burned to the ground, as were the settlements they protected. Those that managed to repel the Native American warriors found themselves under siege. Pontiac's plan appeared to be working for a time, but after three years of vicious fighting, the British had turned the tide, and Pontiac agreed to a peace settlement. Just three years later, he would be murdered by a member of the Peoria tribe of Illinois, leading to violent reprisals against them by Pontiac's people. While ultimately losing the war that bears his name, Pontiac's story shows how much of a threat the Native American people were to the white settlers when they were organized. Pontiac's war was initially viewed as a loss for the Native Americans, but historians now argue it was more of a stalemate. 
neither side was able to wholly defeat the other. While during the peace negotiations, the British agreed to opening a dialogue for trade and the settling of disputes, giving Pontiac the respect for him and his people he desired all along. Today, Pontiac lives on through the city that bears his name, a place in Michigan close to Detroit. The name subsequently went to a brand of automobile manufactured for General Motors within the city. In 1861, John Bozeman left his wife and children in Georgia to seek his fortune in the burgeoning gold rush of Colorado, and then later Montana. At the time, there were only two routes from the east heading into the mining regions of Montana, and both took a rather long way around territory held by a handful of tribes, most notably the Oglala Lakota. Either unknowingly or with little respect for the tribes, he decided to forge a more direct route through the territory, creating the Bozeman Trail that would run from Fort Laramie in Wyoming along the Powder River and into Montana. This incursion angered the tribes, and in particular, the 43-year-old leader of the Oglala, known as Red Cloud, who had been promised dominion over them by a treaty with the Americans, a treaty he had honored, but now they were not. Not coming from a family of leaders, Red Cloud had to earn his position among the Oglala Dakota people, using his powerful personality and reputation as a skilled warrior. Recognizing that Red Cloud would not stand by and allow this infringement to go unanswered, the US began fortifying Bozeman's trail, and so Red Cloud attacked in 1866, after gaining the support of the neighboring tribes. Like before with Pontiac, the resulting conflict became known by the senior tribal chief's name, thus being termed Red Cloud's War. Lasting two years, Red Cloud's forces fought a series of pitched battles with the US Army, the workers on the trail and civilians trying to cross it, including caravans led by Bozeman himself. Three US forts established along the route again found themselves under siege, and their numbers whittled down by prolonged combat and the cutting off of supplies. In the largest action of the war, known as the Fetterman Fight, Red Cloud's forces successfully lured 81 US Army soldiers under the command of Captain William J. Fetterman into an ambush, where they were massacred. It was the single biggest loss of life sustained by the US Army in a single battle with Native American warriors up until this point. After nearly two years of fighting, the US decided it simply wasn't worth continuing the conflict over the trail. They agreed to a peace settlement with Red Cloud at Fort Laramie on April 29th, 1868. As part of the treaty, the US ceded territory belonging to the Crow tribe who had supported them against Red Cloud. It was a tremendous victory, but rather than celebrate, there were those within his own people and allies, including his son, who felt that Red Cloud was being too accommodating with the white man, who time and time again had proven untrustworthy. When war loomed once again in 1874, Red Cloud fought for a peaceful solution with the government, even as blood was being shed on the battlefields. For the rest of his life, Red Cloud never gave up 
on trying to achieve recognition for his tribe and other Native Americans through peaceful means. This alienated him from many in his tribe, especially when he and his wife embraced Christianity and became baptized as John and Mary shortly before his death on December 10th, 1909. A seldom told fact surrounding Red Cloud is that he was the most photographed Native American of the period, with around 127 images recorded of him between 1872 and 1909. His name adorns a town in Nebraska, and it was seriously considered for a US ballistic missile submarine launched under the Kennedy administration. However, it was dropped because it was feared that the Soviet Union would misinterpret it. He has been inducted into the Nebraska Hall of Fame and has appeared on a 10 cent stamp commemorating great Americans in history. Few names in the history of the battle between Native Americans and the United States Army are as well known as Crazy Horse, and rightly so, for not only was he a skilled warrior, but he was a gifted tactician and a determined leader. And it would be under his leadership that the Native Americans would inflict their single biggest victory over the US Army, securing his name in the history of not only the American continent, but the world. Arguments still persist as to when the man history would remember as Crazy Horse was born, but most estimates place his birth somewhere in the period of 1840 to 1845. Like Red Cloud, he was born to the Oglala band of the Lakota tribe, sometimes known as the Tenton Sioux, and he rose to prominence amongst the ranks despite his often unorthodox and even rebellious ways compared to the other men of the tribe. From an early age, he developed a hatred of the white man when 30 US soldiers entered his camp and accused them all of stealing a cow that had in fact simply wandered in. These soldiers under Lieutenant John Lawrence Grattan shot dead the chief known as Conquering Bear. This enraged the Native Americans who turned on the US soldiers, massacring all 30 of them in retaliation. There was also a very deeply spiritual side to Crazy Horse, and in 1854, he single-mindedly rode off into the prairies for a vision quest, intentionally ignoring the required rituals. After fasting for two days, he had a vision of an unadorned horseman who directed him to present himself in the same way, with no more than one feather and never a war bonnet. In the vision, he was also instructed to toss dust over his horse before entering battle, to place a stone behind his ear, and to never take anything for himself. These instructions he followed to the letter for the rest of his life. By the time Red Cloud began amassing his forces to resist the building of the Bozeman Trail, Crazy Horse was already a prominent leader within his tribe and agreed to support his campaign. Crazy Horse was instrumental in the notorious battle with Captain Fetterman's force. He and his warriors acting as the bait that lured the US troops into the ambush set by Red Cloud. Crazy Horse did not always enjoy such success, however, and he led his people into their own massacre when, on August 2nd, 1867, he attacked a wood-cutting crew with an overwhelming number of warriors. 
However, the US soldiers protecting them were using new breech-loading weapons, as opposed to the earlier musket types, and these were capable of a substantially higher number of rounds being fired a minute. Known as the wagon box fight, owing to the wheelless wagons used by the US troops for cover, over 50 Lakota were killed, with some estimates putting the number as high as 120 dead. As the hostilities drew to a close, Crazy Horse was one of the leaders who were dissatisfied with the peace treaty and the Native Americans who worked with the US government. In the post-war years, he conducted several raids on enemy tribes and stirred up trouble for the US government, who were now building up their railroad networks linking the east and west coasts of the United States, encroaching on tribal land in the process. By the early 1870s, he had moved his tribe further north onto the banks of the Little Bighorn River in Montana, linking up with the tribe of Chief Sitting Bull, and together they began a campaign of raids on federal government forces. With the US soldiers violating previous treaties with the Lakota and other tribes in search of gold, and the native population conducting raids, war on the Great Plains was etching ever closer with each passing day. In 1873, Crazy Horse had his first meeting with the man whose name his own would forever become entwined with, General George Armstrong Custer. Crazy Horse stumbled across a group of Custer's men resting and made an attempt to steal their horses, but the US soldiers beat him and his warriors back. Under the encouragement and protection of federal forces, the railroad and gold mining industries flooded into the territory, and by 1876, the tribes could not tolerate it any longer. More and more tribes flocked to Sitting Bull's banner as they prepared for war. In response, US forces began searching for him and Crazy Horse, raiding villages and camps for the notorious leaders. On June 17, 1876, Crazy Horse led a force of 1,500 warriors against Brigadier General George Crook's force of 1,000 troops and 300 allied native warriors. Known as the Battle of the Rosebud, the fight was not a typical engagement for Crazy Horse's forces, who were more used to hit-and-run attacks. Instead, they stood their ground in a pitched battle, inflicting terrible casualties on Crook's forces. And while the US general would declare victory in the aftermath, for he still controlled the field of battle, the reality was he had been dealt such a blow in men and supplies that he was forced to retreat to Goose Creek in Wyoming, where he could reorganize and resupply before advancing once again. This would prove crucial in the next battle of what history now remembers as the Great Sioux War. A week after the Battle of Rosebud, Crazy Horse encountered Custer and his 7th Cavalry again, when Custer attacked Native American camps along the Little Bighorn River. On June 25th, 1876, a date that has become as infamous in the story of the United States as much as Pearl Harbor, Custer's forces engaged the native tribes. This would prove the Civil War hero's last stand. In the melee of combat that followed, Custer and 267 of his men would be killed in an overwhelming victory for Crazy Horse and his warriors. 
Crazy Horse's exact exploits during the battle remain the subject of contention among historians, but many of the Native Americans who were there at the time testified later that he fought bravely and without mercy. Regardless of just how much of an influence he personally had in the defeat of Custer, Crazy Horse's name would forever be linked to the US Army's defeat that day, and both he and Sitting Bull were vilified by the US government in the years afterwards. It was the second time Crazy Horse had been associated with the biggest defeat of US forces in the so-called Indian Wars. Over the coming months, Crazy Horse and his men found themselves the ultimate prize for the US Army, who pursued them vigorously with the intention of killing them all in revenge. The winters of 1876 and 1877 brought a relative lull in the fighting, but this itself was a bigger threat to Crazy Horse's people as the US Army. Their supplies quickly began to run down, and following a major engagement at the Battle of Wolf Mountain on January 8th, 1877, Crazy Horse began to realize he had no choice but to surrender to save his people. Surrendering at Fort Robinson, he encountered his old ally Red Cloud, who was now clearly embracing the ways of the white man, much to his dismay. One year after Custer's death, the Lakota honored Crazy Horse in a ceremony known as the Last Sun Dance. Crazy Horse's people were now being forced into a reservation and were at the mercy of the federal government, who eyed Crazy Horse with suspicion after word began to spread he was planning on leading his people back to freedom. During the weeks of talks concerning the future of him and his people, including chats with his old adversary, General George Crook, many threats and falsehoods were shared by those with a stake in the outcome, making reliable negotiations all but impossible. On September 5th, 1877, the US Army attempted to arrest Crazy Horse, but he refused to go with them. Instead, he produced a knife and threatened an old friend, Little Big Man, who was now working as a policeman for the federal government. Upon seeing this, one of the guards attacked Crazy Horse with his bayonet, and despite efforts to save his life, he died shortly before midnight. It was reported later that even as he lay dying, he refused to lay in the white man's cot and insisted he be laid to die on the earth, on his land. And there you have the tales of the greatest Native American warriors. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.